0: Welcome back to the Cycling Tips Nerd Alert Podcast. It is the week of July 5th, and I am here at the Bowler Groupetto with our pro mechanic, Zach Edwards. Hello, Zach. Hi. We also have with us tech editor Dave Rome, all the way from Sydney, Australia. Hi, Dave. Hello. We do not have with us today, however, Kaylee Fretz, our editor-in-chief. He is currently somewhere running around France eating baguettes and cheese as he is chasing racers around the Tour de France today. Bit of a last-minute trip for him. Uh, turns out, flights to France are very cheap right now because I think he was able to go and uh, go for thirty-five dollars, maybe okay. with a little bit of United credit <laughs> tossed in there. Yeah, that, that may have helped a little bit for his previous canceled flight two years ago. Yep, yep, indeed, <laughs> indeed. Uh, but you know, be that as it may, I am sure that as soon as Kaylee saw a window for him to go back to the tour, he was not going to miss that opportunity because he kind of just needs to go. He, he just needs to be there for some reason. He, he can't help it. Experience.
1: Something. Experience
0: France. Something. Uh, I, I don't know. Yeah. Either way, he's there right now. Put He'll be there out. until the end. So uh, we'll have him back on for Nerd Alert, hopefully in a couple weeks' time, but we'll see. We'll see. He might need a little, bit, a little bit of a break. We'll find out. Anyway, we have another great show for you, as always. We've got a bunch of tech news to go over, some new gravel bikes, some crazy new wheels, more wireless stuff. Uh, a little bit of disc brake news in relation to racing. And then we have another Vela Club exclusive Ask a Mechanic segment. So where where we have solicited questions exclusively from our Vela Club members. So with that, we are going to go ahead and get right into it. Uh, this week, Scott has announced its new gravel bike, replacing the old Attic gravel that was basically just a shared platform with their cross bike. So the new Attic Gravel is finally a real dedicated gravel bike with its own specific geometry. It's got a longer front end, a uh, lower bottom bracket, longer rear end, more tire clearance. It'll fit uh, 700 by 45 millimeter tires now, it used to only clear 40s. It's got more mounts, uh, supposedly rides a little bit better. The big news there really, though, is the geometry. However, in addition to the geometry, it also kind of, I mean, I would say it's, You know, a a pretty rotified gravel bike in the sense that it took an awful lot of design cues and features from Scott's Attic RC road racing bike, Uh, namely like aero tube shapes and like a super integrated front end, totally hidden cabling, that sort of thing. Um, The bike, I think, will be really fun to ride. And with that much tire clearance and with the new geometry, I bet it'll be quite capable and quite fun when things get kind of rowdy. I always still wonder though, uh, we've talked an awful lot about how Road racing kind of like, you know, you sort of have like the racification of all things gravel, like gravel events just, you know, keep becoming races and, you know, more road racers are kind of migrating over into gravel. And in some ways now it seems like, you know, I guess this is inevitable. A lot of gravel bikes, you know, though they were always sort of modified versions of road bikes to begin with, now we are seeing an awful lot more of high-end gravel bikes that just really look like super high-end road bikes with more tire
1: clearance. I mean, that's what gravel bikes started out as. and like, that's what the gravel bike I want is a road bike with more tire clearance. I don't want a worse version of a mountain bike.
0: No, I I mean, I, I think in that sense, that is what gravel bikes have always been, like you said, and always arguably what they should be. But I guess what I'm wondering is, do gravel riders necessarily want Some of these other things that are associated with higher performance road bikes, like the aero tubing and the super hyper integrated front ends and stuff like that. Like, is that a good thing for gravel?
1: I mean, I want to say no, but I have enough customers who say yes to this stuff. Like they have the 3T aero gravel bikes and geek out about aero wheels for their gravel bikes and all this stuff. So like, I want to say in essence, gravel bikes should not be any of these things, but people do want this.
0: Because they still want to go fast, yeah, yeah, and like all those things presumably help people go faster, correct, or we'll feel like they're going faster, yeah, placebo. I mean, I and I guess you know they they do look cool. I yeah. will say that, like they, that new Addic gravel, looks I do sweet.
1: I mean, maybe this is just me being kind of grumpy, and I don't know this new Scott gravel gravel bike. Like I saw it first, I thought it was BMC because the lines on it, like how they mm. do the shaping of the head tube and everything, like I thought it was BMC, and then I looked at like it doesn't excite me. Like it's not, it's not anything different than any other gravel bike out there. It's like, to me, why do I want this bike over like every other company's gravel bike? But it's like people joke about, Oh, another new tarmac came out when someone comes out with a road bike with drop seat stays. And I feel like gravel bikes are starting to, to become the same exact thing.
2: Yeah. I guess, I guess uh, that's the issue when you follow as a brand, because there's, you know, I guess as far as big companies as far as big brands go I can't think of anyone slower to create a dedicated gravel bike than Scott <laughs> right so I mean pretty much all the all the cherries are being picked from the tree already with this one and uh yeah they had no choice like you know they, they have stuck a somewhat to their own design language that was uh, somewhat unique to them with uh with the the Scott addict RC but at the same time, everyone's already done all this. So I guess there's no there's no way for them to avoid it looking like someone else's bike, even though it is truly their own.
1: Yeah. Like I just think like they just count with a new Scott Spark. And that's like thinking outside the box it looks very different. There's whether you like it or you hate it, like there are things to differentiate it from other bikes. Where this gravel bike, it just kind of it looks and feels like every other gravel bike
2: that's on the market now. Yeah. But Scott had to acquire another company to get that unique mountain bike. Correct. So <laughs> we'll, we'll slide yeah. that one in there. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. I'm not saying Scott hobbies people. They're generally a pretty innovative company, but uh, I just, yeah, I think it, there's not a lot of scope to, to make a bike look totally different these days. And I think to James's point, uh, unfortunately the market's demanding for these clean looking kind of aero rotified looking gravel bikes and There's only so many ways you can do that at the moment.
1: For sure. I mean, like, even though, like, the paint, to me, it's like, they have the, like, top to bottom, like, two-tone fade. And, like, everyone's doing that. Like, differentiate yourself. Do something different. Don't just copy what every other company's doing. I mean, I'm sure, like, this is all said. Like, I'm sure this bike rides really well, and it's light and fast and, like, a good bike. But to me, it's, like, it's not exciting.
0: Well, I guess that kind of begs the bigger question, though, then. As far as gravel bikes go, and granted, I mean, it, it is very region-specific as far as, like, what your terrain is like that you're going to be using a gravel bike on. But what do people, like, I guess, what do we each want in a gravel bike?
1: I mean, I've already said I want a road bike with big tire clearance. Like, I don't want suspension. I don't want mountain bike geometry. I just want something that I can, because you're never going to do, like, at least here in what I'm doing, I'm never going to do purely just gravel roads. Like, you're going to do pavement. You're going to do maybe a road paved descent and then you're going to do some single track and then some double track and then a smooth dirt road or something like you're not. I'm not just riding four hours of washboard roads where I want flexi everything, but that's that's me.
2: Yeah, it's such a personal question. I'm with I'm with Zach on that one for my personal needs. I like a bike to basically feel like a road bike or like a cycle cross race bike. I guess something really reactive that you can ride really quickly on. Uh, and that you can attack on and sort of you know do do a bit of everything with and do it efficiently, uh, and then as soon as the bike starts to feel a little, a little sluggish and a little slow to react and a, a little heavy, then at that point I'm just missing a mountain bike. I'd much rather be on a hardtail, which is a far more capable bike for for the the style of riding that those the heavier, more burly gravel bikes are designed for. Right, like you have a
1: gravel bike with some suspension and. 50 mil tires or something like it's the
2: same weight as an xc hardtail yeah yeah or heavier yeah, um, right. <laughs> and then yeah so but i guess that's my music my use case but there's lots of people out there that are you know using gravel bikes for multi-day adventures or for ultra endurance events who definitely do need something different to what i guess zach and i are, are looking for in a bike
0: sure so then i guess coming back to the scott though like you know zach you said that You know, kind of what I think—we're all three of us are in agreement as far as what our personal tastes are in gravel bikes. That you kind of want more of a road-like bike with big tires. Like you want to do road rides on just on like crappier terrain, essentially. Yeah, basically. So in that sense, why wouldn't this attic gravel appeal to you then?
1: I mean, I'm not saying it doesn't appeal. It just I'm. It doesn't excite me. Like it doesn't.
0: It doesn't stand out. It
1: doesn't stand out of being different from anything else. Like there's no reason I would go buy the Scott over something else that's similar. Like, unless, unless my favorite local bike shop was a Scott dealer, like that's the only reason I could see why I would want this Scott and not necessarily even because I want the Scott, but because I want to support that shop that sells the Scott, not necessarily. Like, I mean, you could buy, I mean, what, like an open, a checkpoint. Uh, I don't know. Like, I don't, they're all kind of that same, like round tube, the Cervelo like their round tube fit 40 ish mill tires, road geometry without suspension like that's they all kind of fall in that same category
2: yeah yeah for me like this the new bike kind of uh makes me think of like a Savelo Espero 5 in a way yeah and the reality is is that savello has had a a kind of a, a rocky history as far as reliability and there are a lot of people out there that won't touch the brand now because they've had you know bad experience or they've heard secondhand of someone having a bad experience Scott doesn't have that reputation, so maybe they're being quite clever here to ride on someone else's coattails and just, you know, take up uh, take up some of the uh, the sales that come with it. Um, I'd also say there's never discount um, brand loyalty. You know, there's people that will buy a Specialized because it's a Specialized, and there's people that will buy a Scott because it's a Scott. So um, I think they will sell a lot of these, despite the fact that it perhaps doesn't offer anything new to the market.
1: The one thing I just thought of that I didn't see in the write up about it: Does it have a threaded or press fit bottom bracket?
2: I'm pretty sure it's press fit eighty six.
1: Boo! Sure. Don't come off new bikes with press fit. <laughs>
2: <laughs> threaded for life. Yeah. Scott's Scott's always held really good tolerances with their with their press fit. Uh, you know, they're they're kind of, in my experience, they're roughly comparable to Giant in that regard. I mean, I've definitely seen
1: some where the cups just fall in and out of the frame. Mm. But
2: well, I mean, I'm mean, sure, the,
1: these, sure these ones are great. Yeah, yeah that's yeah. the tool-free slip foot. E- yeah. Easy for replacement.
0: I mean, I guess at, at the very least, at least it's not press fit 30, which I think is universally the worst press fit system out yeah. there. I mean, it's at least, like I said, I'm pretty sure it's press fit 86. It, um, But I but, feel like
1: if you're, yeah, if you're a bike company nowadays, like, read the room. Everything's going back to threaded and people are happy about it. Like, make your bike threaded. Whether it's T47 or a 68 mil shell, like, just put some threads in there. Put some little metal ring. Put yeah. some hopefully
0: well-aligned yeah. metal rings in there. Like we
1: have it. have the technology now to do it, so that your aluminum threads don't just come unbonded from the carbon frame. Like people have figured out how to do this.
2: My 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 big issue with uh, not to go on a tangent about bottom bracket centers, but PF <laughs> uh, eighty six. I like it because it tends to be, um, I guess, better. The brand, the manufacturers using it tend to hold better um, manufacturing tolerances than those using PF30. In my in my experience, yeah, the issue is agree. is that SRAM is now all in on its dub 29 millimeter spindle, which means any bike spec with SRAM is going to have really shitty small bearings. Yeah, they're going to wear out super quickly. <laughs> yeah.
0: yeah, yeah, and and most of those Scout bikes are spec with SRAM. Yeah, that's my issue with this standard. Nothing else. To be clear, I, I don't have. 100% firm confirmation from Scott that it oh, is okay. PressFit 86. Um, it I, I'm pretty certain it's not threaded, though, just based on the width. I mean, of I shot. feel like if they
1: came out with a new bike and didn't say, hello, this new bike has a threaded bottom bracket, it's probably it's still, still a PressFit. Fit.
0: Yeah, probably. Yeah.
2: Anyway. You remember the days when PressFit bottom brackets were a feature?
0: <laughs> yeah, a positive feature. When everything
2: feature. had threads and then they'll yeah. move into PressFit and it was, like yeah. a, it was like a feature of lightness and steepness. I, I and do remember that very. Everyone that knew anything
1: was like, "No, please don't do this."
0: Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, I remember, I remember the handmade bike show where um, SRAM basically went all in on PressFit 30, and they were touting the plastic cups as a feature because they would conform to yeah. slightly, you know, non-perfect are, bottom bracket shells, and that didn't work out so well. There
1: are so many sad customers out there with custom metal bikes from that era with PressFit 30 shells.
0: I mean, at least there are solutions to fix that now, right? Like, yeah. You, know, you have to th- thread together solutions that work a lot better. And like, if it's a metal frame, at least you have a, have a chance of, you know, if you need it to, like, you know, facing the shell or you know, that sort of thing. Like, uh, you, have, you have hope.
1: Yeah. Some hope. Some hope. Not much.
0: There's always a new bike. There is yeah. <laughs> always a new bike, indeed. All right. Well, Zach, you said one of the things that you know, maybe didn't really get you get your going on this added gravel is that it didn't really stand out from the crowd. Uh, I do have a way that you could stand out from the crowd, however. Yeah, how's that? Uh, so, Black Ink, the accessory company that's out there, I think is, that, is Black Ink a, a, a division of Factor? It's, uh, a it's, to me.
2: it's its own. They like to call it its own brand, but it's very much like uh, I see it as like how Roval sits within Specialized. It's like okay, got its that's own, kind of, what I you know, kind of its trend design thing, But it's, team, the, same. But it's right? the same, right? <laughs> yeah, the money yeah. ends up in the same pot. Yeah. Comes yeah. from
1: the same warehouse. Yeah. Okay,
0: same. Owners. Well, anyway, Black Ink uh, has recently teased some new uh five spoke one piece molded carbon fiber road wheels uh they're not uci legal we should point that out because i think the uci requires what 12 spokes minimum something Something like that that, yeah Um, something that you can't stick your foot through a spoke basically yes so dave you did the write-up on this can you give us some more details on these things
2: yeah i mean you basically covered it it's uh it's a it's a five-spoke full carbon wheel, which uh you won't see in race use with the exception of maybe a very steep uphill time trial. Uh and then even then it's questionable what the error gains are here because it's uh speak to some people and, and these wheels, like the three-spoke versions, are apparently quite aero, but once you start adding more spokes, then they become less aero. Uh but yeah, basically it's a twelve hundred and ninety-gram wheel. Wheel set, uh, tubeless with a with a hooked rim, so you can run clinches or you can run tubeless tires. So wide open tire compatibility. Uh, yeah, full carbon construction. They've they've basically you know they're claiming that it's it's a it's a really strong balance of aerodynamics and weight, but realistically the main feature here is is aesthetics. You you're not going to buy this wheel for any other reason than that it looks cool. If you consider it to look cool please please tell me they're going to offer them in a bunch of different colors no no black only uh i don't think they're expecting to sell a huge number of them they they weren't even going to do like a proper launch of them they'll just kind of soft launching them and then casually putting them on their website um so yeah i mean we spotted it on being used by michael woods on a rest day at the tour uh which is kind of their way of, of teasing it um yeah, I mean, there's there's probably not not too much to cover there, but the main thing for me is that um it's not a new product as such. That for them for fa- uh, for Black Ink, uh, they uh, have clearly been inspired by what um, Bikerhead Composites is doing, which is a German company who make these kind of wheels. Um, Bikerhead Composites they they do a six spoke version, but otherwise on paper they they're very similar they're within 40 grams of what Blank, black ink have done they're also a hooked rim very similar with very similar rim depth um also similar price which is sits at about 3500 US for a pair um so yeah I, I i don't think the the sales proposition here is a, a very strong one i don't think this is going to change the market but uh it is you know it's a cool looking arguable Cool looking uh, option <laughs> um, for, you know, for people that like that kind of retro look. I, kind of, I wonder what they ride like. Stiff, I reckon. Yeah, I've got a customer that has a set of
1: the bike ahead ones for his mountain bike and they just, like, I would be terrified to ride them off-road. They just seem like they would just explode. Like well,
0: they, I mean, people have said that about anything carbon fiber that's ended up on mountain bikes. And yeah, but it's, it's like, fine.
1: it's different. They just feel fragile, like fragile and stiff at the same time. So brittle. You yeah. Know. Like they would just like you case something or like hit a rock wrong and they would just like explode is what I'm sure they won't because they're racing them in the World Cup right now. But like they just they yeah, the feel ghost, like they would explode. The Ghost explode. Factory
2: team races those off-road. So, um, yeah, I, I don't know. You never know how many wheels they go through. But uh I'm sure by now they've got them pretty dialed, but um, yeah, I don't, I don't have any hesitation that Black Inks wheels are, are unsafe or anything. I think that they will be, but um, at the same time, I think that they're, they're not exceptionally light as a result of that, you know, I think to make them yeah. safe, you know, they've had to make I mean, a wheel that's bordering on 1300 grams, which isn't, by today's standards, I mean, it's light, but it's not exceptionally so.
1: I feel like if you're purely buying these to put a vibe out, like to show like, look, I have these crazy wheels that aren't that arrow that aren't that light that aren't that fast i can't really race them just buy some lightweights you're going to show up people are going to know what they're called and they're going to be like oh those are really cool <laughs> like you show up with a set of five-stroke wheels people be like are those old spinner g's or are those something new
2: like why what am i looking at yeah it could be cool like if you were building like an old throwback modern racer like like you know like, how some people they get, make, are like, they making them in rim brakes though no, but if they, so. if you did like, you know how some people get like a new Cannondale Super 6 and then do it in like Seiko colors, like custom right. painted it as like a Seiko yeah. CAD. If you did something like that, maybe it would be pretty cool. Like a real modern, like ultra, you know, disc brake equipped, but like, you know, in retro colors and get these ribs painted. I think that'd be a pretty cool bike. But uh, personally, I won't be, I won't be buying a pair. Right. So basically like the bike equivalent of like a resto mod in exactly.
0: the real world. Exactly
1: but they have hooks on the rim, so I'm a fan. Yeah, you can run whatever tire you want. Yeah.
0: All right, so then we should try and get a set in and we'll put them on Zach's bike.
1: On my Scott, and then I'll be stand out.
0: Yes, yes, <laughs> indeed. You can have them. You can have the, fit, the, the paint faded to match. Perfect. Done. Done. All right. Uh, <laughs> in our next bit of news here, uh, Ronan McLaughlin, our illustrious tech rider who has been at the tour for much of the race so far, um, he spotted some new wireless shifters from sram uh time time trial shifters ostensibly um so the the current remotes that sram have you have to plug them into levers uh these are apparently totally wireless they have a little battery in them that unfortunately as at least in prototype form is non-replaceable and non-rechargeable which they're basically just disposable which seems a little silly um but, I mean, this clearly indicates that SRAM is continuing to build on its Axis ecosystem, um, and, you know, since they could be presumably paired to anything that runs on Access, uh, it kind of opens things up, makes things kind of interesting as far as what you could do with these, because, you know, you can put them anywhere and, like, move them around, you can, you know, have them operate different things, you know, like, if you wanted to run a DT bike with a dropper seat post I guess you could do that with these somehow <laughs> but anyway I mean there's a lot of flexibility in what you could do um, so it, it, the, the potential seems pretty intriguing um, I guess I'm not particularly a huge fan of their form factor right now they're, they're pretty big they're like sort of like a like a flat egg
1: it's like the same shape as the original blip box which is like a big
0: yeah like a rectangle kind of with shawty. a
1: rounded end like pretty big and not great like a box of mints yeah the thing, like to me, it seems like besides them being disposable, which is not great, um, to me it seems like it's sim- maybe a similar technology that they use in the zip, uh, whatever their extensions are called that have have the shifting bits bit built into each one, so you don't have to have a separate blip box. Mm-hmm. So we're like each each extension has its own pairing set-, set up that you then pair to the derailleur instead of uh, you put you don't connect each shifter to a wire or really, right. each extension if that makes sense. Um, but so it seems like they're just building on that and then a more compact, compact shape.
0: I mean, keeping in mind that these are presumably, you know, they're supposedly prototypes, they're not, they're not done. Um, you know, hopefully they will get a little bit smaller and hopefully they will have at least say like a replaceable coin cell battery like the yeah, like I, mean, the I would,
1: do. Like if they're made for TT bikes, it could be something completely different that these are for. But if it's on a TT bike, I would think like utilize the inside of the extension, like you could have Some cylinder shape that goes, I don't know, a few centimeters into the extension, and you could fill that with a battery or, or whatever you need, and just have a single button, kind of like the, the normal SRAM TT shifters.
0: And uh, alternatively, since they can be paired to whatever, you know, one of the possibilities that Ronan brought up was the fact that, you know, the new rival access stuff does not have expansion ports in the levers, um, but uh, you should be able to connect these remote shifters because they're wireless to those rival shifters, and then you would actually be able to run remote shifters on a rival setup, even though it doesn't have ports for them. So that could be kind of cool. Well, that's the thing. We don't know how they mount. We don't know exactly how they attach or anything. I mean, they kind of look like you would just kind of like put them on with double stick tape or something, but I would hope SRAM would have some sort of more elegant solution for that. Yeah.
1: I mean, in terms of their TT stuff, like I've been hoping for a more elegant solution for a while. Like, they still don't have a brake lever for the base bar with the built-in shifter, which that seems kind of silly like there's not the current setup with the blips whether they have the new trigger style one or or the little round ones like neither
0: of those are the cleanest on the base bar setup right because it's still like another thing that you have to stick on there yeah
1: and they have like a the trigger one they have a little mount that kind of goes and mounts behind the brake lever and is a little bit cleaner um the downside with that is that when your brake pads wear and the lever pulls a little bit farther the lever hits the shifter before the brake pads hit the rotor. So it's a little bit of a... Well, that's your pad wear indicator. Yeah. When you no longer can stop, it's time to replace your pads. <laughs> <laughs> but like, yeah, I've been like, I don't know. Like their TT stuff, it works really well and it's really easy to run the back half of the bike, but how the current stuff is with the wires and the blip box and where everything connects, it's not not as straightforward as Di2, in my yeah. opinion.
2: Yeah. But I yeah, I don't know. I, I, I'm kind of pessimistic on this where I, I think, it kind of makes sense that it's a half-baked product given the market size of TT and Try. Like, I it's mean, Tri is huge, though.
1: There's so many Tri people. It's huge. I mean, not huge. But I think it's, it's not huge. it's not like gravel, but
2: yeah, yeah. It's still a small market for for them. And I think it's still a niche. It's it's a it's a potentially pr- very profitable niche. But you know, when you look at campy's options in the space as well, I mean, it's it's just not a. A booming market for them to spend, you know, millions of dollars refining these things.
1: No, but like Campy's not going to have Tri Bike OEM where SRAM could get every TT tri bike manufacturer having group sets on their bikes.
0: I mean, to that to that point, I mean Campy is still, I mean their sponsored riders are still on 11 speed for TT. Well,
1: that's their disc wheel doesn't take a 12 speed.
0: So like, but like you know, talking about you know niche products, like you know you have a company like Campagnolo who. You know has a fair bit of i guess visibility as far as time trial product out in the world and even in that situation they don't have they don't have enough justification to you know kind of revamp some stuff you know. to put their teams on a 12 speed tt setup sidebar
1: the current leader of the tour crushed the tt on at like a 10 year old campy ghibli disc and 11 speed group set and rim brakes and not some crazy aero coach front wheel. Like everyone's doing all these marginal gains. And he went out on essentially a 10 year old TT bike and just crushed everyone. And I kind of appreciate that.
0: I, I mean, this, this like narrow rims, tubulars, all of the things that are not fast. <laughs> I mean, it, it does, you know, this kind of leads into the next thing I wanted to talk about. Um, because yeah, the current leader of the tour, Tadej Pogacar, he, you know some people have noticed that on road stages now he has been switching at least for the mountain the mountain stages anyway he's he's switched from rim brakes to disc brakes, um which probably was particularly helpful when it was really wet the other day um so we could presumably have you know assuming everything continues to go the way it 's been, we could presumably have the first tour finally one on disc brakes, which would be interesting, considering that you know discs have been around for quite a while in the tour now um but yeah like to your to your point Zach you know, there there's all this talk about marginal gains, marginal gains, marginal gains. Turns out, like, the big gains still matter more than the marginal gains.
1: Yeah, weird. I mean, like, I mean, his bike in general, on his red bike, even with this brakes, is still probably one of the slowest bikes in the Peloton, right? Like, circle Naga with basically round tubes and some pretty standard V-profile, campy tubular
0: wheels. But it's got a threaded bottom bracket, kind of. Half threaded. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> threaded
1: with press fit. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Um, what did they call it? Like thread fit 82.5 or something I or 86.5 is something like that. Uh, wait, what do we remember what, what Colt Nago model he's riding?
2: It's probably the V3 RS. Is that's my guess. That one, yeah. That's, yeah, yeah. That's yeah. the, that's the been performance riding. one. Yeah, not the not the C64. So
0: that's their you know presumably kind of like aero yeah. kind of model right now. I mean, it's been around for a little while now.
2: It's not totally round tubed. It does have some aero profiles. I'd, I'd say it's it's not the most aero thing. But
1: it was definitely not taken in a wind tunnel. No, nah. it's Colnago. It's, it's not in a wind
0: tunnel. <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. So the, the, the fact that he might be he, the fact that he might win this year's tour, at least partially on a bike with disc brakes, do you think that will move the needle at all for people who have been constantly going on and on about how, you know, discs have still not won a Tour de France?
1: Do people care? Some people apparently do. Like, like you know, you're not going to be like some hardcore rim brake person who's like, I'll ride rim brakes forever until the tour is won. Like, that person is not going to go out and buy a disc brake bike tomorrow because... Pogacar is winning the tour on disc brakes.
0: No, but but it's like anything that 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 is being used or raced at that sort of level. It's not so much that it's like an you know an absolute if then sort of argument. It's more like it's more like validation or you know kind of like proof of concept, I guess, so to speak.
1: Yeah, I mean, but like at this point, disc brakes are. It's not. They're not going away. They're here to stay. Like everything's going disc brakes. Whatever. Like, Ineos, Ineos is the only silly team still on rim brakes. It's a, it's a fad, just sort of like, the internet thing. But, like, I mean, I think, personally, that I find more exciting, how many tubulars are in the race right now? Basically, everyone is still running tubulars, other than Quickstep and Bora. and ba- I.
0: Basically, other than Specialized. Yeah. Other than, but like, e- all the teams... EF I think, is still on...
1: They're all on tubulars, all Go those ahead. new Vision wheels. Like, if you see, basically, anyone in the Peloton... Other than Bora and Quickstep with tan walls, they're on tubulars.
2: Yeah, Vis- Vision released some new disc brake only wheels um, this week, but they have tubular versions available. Yeah. 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 And basically that's, everyone's riding those. They've, they've invested in tooling for those for sure. So they, they're not going anywhere. Yeah. And they're sponsoring quite a few teams. So
1: And teams are buying those wheels and tubular version that are not sponsored by Vision. Like Yumbo is riding them.
2: Hmm.
0: And they're on supposed to be on Shimano wheels. I mean, Shimano clearly needs to come out with their new new generation of wheels because as far as like a sponsor correct visibility sort of thing, they're taking some pretty big hits lately.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, I feel like it's got to be just like available. Like there's no, there was new Dura Ace that we talked about in one of the last podcasts and like no one's on that in the tour. Um, but I would say it's got to be like just down to availability. Like another one, their factories is closed down again. because The COVID. one that makes wheels. Yeah, exactly. So like... Even if they had wheels to let pro riders are out, like why would they release them when no one's going to be able to buy them for a year? Like, I don't know. Maybe they'll come out with the Volta when people aren't watching it.
0: <laughs> well, I mean, it is bike industry, so... Yeah. I mean, still I mean maybe
1: they'll, like... Because Eurobike, supposedly, is happening, maybe they'll do a big launch there, but... Yeah. To me, it seems like Shimano
0: definitely is on the back foot in terms of high-quality race wheels that people actually want to use. I mean, I would say Shimano has never been known to be... Certainly in terms of wheels, aside from them being an early adopter of road tubeless, I would say they have never been, they've never had a reputation for being particularly progressive in terms of, you know, following trends or like, your arrow or width or anything. No, I mean, everyone
1: really loved the C24 tubulars for ages just because they were so light.
0: And they rode so well. They did ahead
1: of set. They rode really, really well. But now people want arrow, and those are not that.
2: Yeah, Shimano has never really been a market leader in the wheel space or a market innovator in the wheel space. They've just always been a very good, reliable option. Yeah. Right.
0: Oh, but man, if they made, if they made a modern version of that C24 with like a, a a wider rim, disc compatible and still felt just as good. It'd be sweet. With a hooked tubeless rim. Oh, it'd be like those wheels felt amazing. They, they, they climbed so well. They they rode super smooth. They seemed like they just rolled forever, despite the fact that they were not aero at all. Yeah, but they were so good. They were really nice,
1: and they take a beating too. I raced them in cross and like smashed them into stuff all the time, and they never broke because they're aluminum. No, no, I'm talking about the C24, the carbon tubulars.
0: Uh, oh, I was talking about the uh, the oh, carbon no. aluminum. I was talking about line. the like
1: carbon tubulars that were like 1100 grams. Oh, oh, oh,
0: hmm. Well, still, if they came out with a modernized version of that, that would like be a sweet.
1: Yeah. It's basically the NV22 is the same thing, but they don't do that in a disc
2: brake wheel, right? Um, but yeah, back to back to your point, James, about the disc brakes and whether this will, oh yeah, that's whether where we you were know at. if the Tour de France is one on disc brakes, whether it'll change anything. I don't know. I think grumpy people still yell at walls about this. Yeah. So this will just be like you know I think the outcome of this will just be like, well, well, of course you know if the best rider is forced by sponsors to ride disc brakes and that's going to happen, I think that's going to be uh, the argument out of this. Yeah. Um I think there's just yeah. I think people no matter what happens with disc breaks, I think there's always gonna be people that that just don't want them and are gonna come up with every excuse and every evi- piece of evidence to show that it's it's a conspiracy.
0: Right, right. I mean this is obviously nowhere near the same yeah, this is obviously nowhere near the same thing, but you know, we still have people who believe that we never landed on the moon and like, you know, the earth, the people legitimately believe that the earth is flat and there's nothing you can do to tell them otherwise. So you can show them a disc brake
2: in person. Yeah. It's real. So, yeah, so <laughs> road, road discs is like landing on the moon or whatever. <laughs> yeah. I mean, they, yeah.
0: no one denies that, no, no, one, no one thinks that, you know, road discs aren't real. No. It's just oh, more that joking. they don't think that they work as well. Yeah. And yes, Tom, I mean, Tom I, Anhalt, we know that there are things like hydraulic rim brakes and, you know, no various, one wants various rim brake treatments and that sort of thing. But,
1: I mean, I like, what, my has road bike is still rim brake and they work great. Mine too. But like, I also think disc brakes also work great. Like they both have pros and cons. Yeah. yeah. And like, yeah, people are
0: weird. All right. Well, I feel like we're beating a dead horse on this one because the disc versus rim thing is yeah, is clearly not going away anytime soon. Who but that's what ends at the tour. It would be interesting if Pogacha won on discs and what would happen as far as that argument goes. I would be particularly interested to see if, you know, on that last stage you know, as he's cruising around on the Champs and they say, if, if he, at that point, like nothing really matters for him, um, I would be interested to see if he cracked out a road bike with disc brakes. Because that, that feels like that would be sort of you like cross a the sponsor brand statement sort of thing.
1: I mean, he has been rolling around on a yellow disc brake bike, so I don't know.
0: I mean, maybe they don't have a yellow rim brake bike.
1: Yeah. I mean, I would also find it really funny if he did do the last stage on rim brakes. <laughs> Just like... <laughs> It's dry, it's flat. Don't need them, right? <laughs> yeah.
2: Oh man. Yeah. Um, but yeah, just on further on this, uh, I guess uh, Israel startup nation. They they were a team that I, I believe were all in on disc brakes at one point. I think they announced that they were they were done with rim brakes. They made a pretty big deal about it. I think. Yeah, uh, and they uh, I've I've heard from Factor that the they've actually built the team. Every rider has access to two rim brake bikes each now. Uh, Weird. Yeah, which I think. My take on that is that it comes off the back of Froome's not so subtle and fairly public rant about the issues of disc breaks.
0: And when you say not so subtle and, you
2: know,
0: you know not so subtle and fairly public, you mean, you know, very, very clear and very public. Yeah. I mean, he's just trying not to get time cut, like <laughs> save a few <laughs> grams. <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's so uh, brutal. Oh, so- God
2: so yeah so the fact is still keeping their their Ostro, which i guess is their all-round race bike that's that's disc only that that thing can't take rim brakes i don't think they're ever going to bother to put rim brakes on it but uh but yeah i've seen photos of Froome rolling on a on the o2 van with, with uh with with rim brakes uh, i haven't i'm not sure if he's actually used it in racing yet but we'll we'll see
1: that thing they'd have to add so much weight to to make it 6.8 kilos like that. That BM is a light is bike. so light.
2: Yeah. Even, even, and that's the crazy thing. That that bike with disc brakes is actually pretty, should be pretty near the the weight limit. Maybe by, yeah. maybe it might be 200 grams off or something, but that's a really light bike. Broom's been running
1: lightweights and the carbon origin SRM cranks. So, like, the thing's got to be so
0: light. Just drop a couple of chains down the seat tube. <laughs> <laughs> um, I guess to go on a little bit of a tangent. Um, Ronan profiled Froome's bike not too long ago and noticed that he was running a whole bunch of just like you know atypical it just looks awful stuff. though it's just, it's just like, it's like such a mishmash of it looks so bad. But in particular, what was interesting was the fact that he was running a Magura slash rotor brake oh yeah I did caliper, caliper. that is definitely uh, interesting with a Shimano lever. So that's something I, I certainly but only on tried was it only, only, on on the the only, only on the, the rear only, only on the front. front Yep. yeah. But what. I wonder is, I mean, I, I've run Magura mountain bike brakes before and I've always liked them. I don't remember them having particularly amazing pad clearance though. No. Um, and that's one of the things that Froome was really vocal about in that video that seemingly everyone who follows road racing watched. Um, so we haven't had a chance to talk to the team and certainly haven't had a chance to ask Froome about it. Um, but I try it
1: on one of your bikes.
0: Well, I, I kind of wonder like what, like what would be the benefit of doing that? like, I mean, if that
1: works, then you could also take like a campy hydro lever and put a Shimano caliper on it if you wanted to, just because because does use Magura. So like, if it's all cross
2: compatible, that would be
0: kind of oh, hilarious. That would be so unhappy. We should try yeah. it, because
2: I, in my mind, the only reason to do that would be increased pad clearance. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, and Shimano
0: has been, you know, Shimano is okay for pad clearance, but not amazing. Yeah. But what's what's you know what's odd is that you know those Campagnolo disc brakes are made by made by and well, I don't know if they're made by Megura, but they were developed by Megura.
2: They are Megura. And
0: of the three, um, Campagnola has the worst pad clearance, I would say, by far. Interesting. Okay. Um, I mean, that's been my experience anyway. I, mean, I wouldn't say that I wouldn't say that it's the worst. They, they seem pretty tight
1: to me. I feel like I don't see it that often, but I feel like I remember it being pretty good.
0: Like, really good lever feel. Fantastic lever. Like, yeah. the, they, they work the best of the three, I feel like. Yeah. But I also remember them having the, the them being the most sensitive to, to placement, which again is curious considering that Froome is running that and had been complaining about rotor rub.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, it could be something with how much, like, cause different calipers, like let's say like Shimano, for example, let's say you take a, a Saint downhill caliper and you use a, an XTR trail caliper, like the amount of fluid that is required to push those pistons right. versus what's in the lever. Like they feel really good, but you have to bleed them a lot. Um, clearly we, we're going to have to try this out. So it could be like, it works well. It's like it could just be an experiment. Like they could have been like, you know what, Froome, here you go. You complain about disc brakes. We've done something different. Try this.
2: Yeah. It could be, I mean, the only other thing it could be is like maybe modulation based. Maybe it changes the lever feel where to a point that's maybe less grabby or something that, that Froome feels more confident on. Yeah. I don't know. It seems like it'd be pad clearance related for why they'd do it. Regardless, he's not doing well. His bike's not helping. <laughs> no, no, he's doing not any doing doing favors. Well, unfortunately, <laughs> like, no. Um, like, not to yeah. But
0: but clearly I guess I'm just gonna have to try this out. So yeah. uh Laurie at Rotor USA, if you're listening to this, you are likely going to get an email from me asking if I can get a caliper, at least one caliper, just to see if I can try it out and hopefully don't die.
1: It would be an interesting experiment for sure. It would be. It would be. But I mean that back to this bike though. I just it always kills me when you can take a bike and put so many really expensive, nice parts on it and just create a garbage bicycle.
0: Yeah, it, it to me it kind of feels like Pre XTR mountain biking again, where like you had all these different companies coming in with all these really nice CNC machine parts, but then like none right. of them really worked that well together.
1: Yeah. Or what was the was it AG2R? No, I don't remember what team it was. It might have been AG2R. Who was on Eddie Merckx a couple years ago? Yeah. They had like they had like Campy shifting, rotor, rotor cranks, cranks, Mavic, uh, Mavic wheels, and KMC chains. Like just all this mishmash of stuff. But those still looked decent, just because you're like, well, whatever.
2: And then they ended up on repainted Ridleys with Shimano, even though they started the season on Eddie Merckx with Campagnolo. It was very yeah. odd, yeah.
1: Yeah, that's what Frames Bike reminds me of. Just like mishmash of parts that someone at the World tour level should have
0: a better looking bicycle. Oh, those mechanics must be so unhappy. Yeah, That bike
2: would be difficult to work on. Yeah, and especially like with those with asymmetric the, rings. Yeah, that's the main thing that sticks in my mind. I think I, I think I saw him having issues with those the other day, like drop yeah. chain, unable to get the chain back on, waiting for a bike, like walking up a hill. I think yeah, that I mean, would have been no chain-ring related. <laughs> I mean, yeah. I want, this was a, it's been quite a while now. Uh, I don't
1: remember who it was. He wrote for Astana at the time. Um, but he was in town here training and had his TT bike and had me put those on. And his instructions were like, just make it so it stays in the big ring. Like (laughs) it's, I know that it's not going to shift. He's like, just make it so that it works and doesn't rub in the big ring. And that's all you need to do. Oh God. And I was like, sweet. (laughs) Like they, yeah, there's no hope in those
0: shifting. Well, it's a glowing endorsement.
1: Yeah, it was pretty
0: funny. I was like,
1: okay, cool. Low expectations.
0: Okay then. All right. Well that, with that glowing endorsement of Osymmetric, sorry, Osymmetric. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) Let's go ahead and move on to Ask a Mechanic. Let's do it. All right, as I mentioned at the beginning of the show, this is another Velo Club only segment in the sense that, well, I mean, if you're listening to this and you're not a Velo Club member, it's clear this is not this episode is not Velo Club exclusive. It's more that all the questions that we have for this week's Ask a Mechanic segment have come exclusively from Velo Club members. So um, if you haven't joined our Velo Club membership program yet, please consider doing so. It's really quite inexpensive. It gives you access to a whole bunch of really cool stuff. You get a members-only Slack channel, uh, the really great community of Bella Club members, a lot of tech support, a lot of support in general, uh, a lot of just good conversation. There's seemingly no yelling, from what I can tell, which is very odd for an internet forum. Weird. Uh, Yeah, and perhaps most importantly, you know, you do directly support the work that we do here at Cycling Tips. So, uh, again, if you haven't considered or if you haven't yet joined Bella Club, please consider doing so.
1: I feel like there should be a disclaimer. Like if you're an internet yeller, please do not join.
0: Yes. Yes. Although internet yellers tend to not want to like pay to join things. Seemingly. That's true. Like that, yeah. I don't know why that goes together, but that's it's like a that weird filter. A uh, anyway, moving on. First question comes from Greg. I don't know if it's Jenna or Jenna. So my, my apologies, Greg, um, he's asking any suggestions for replicating a bike fit onto a new bike. Same shoes, pedals, and saddle, but the frame geometry is slightly different, so I'm not sure what measurements to make.
1: I mean, it, yeah. I mean, the big measurements are saddle height, saddle setback behind the bottom bracket. Basically, you're kind of,
0: Basically, like, whatever the, the geometry
1: bracket. of the frame is, you're basing everything off of the relationship to the bottom bracket. So the same, same saddle height, same setback, same like uh, saddle to bar reach, and then the same drop um, from the saddle to the handlebar. Um, there are various ways you can measure all those things. Um, just watch some YouTube videos or something. Like I would say, beyond that, like I mean, there's small things like handlebar rotation and hood position. If you're getting a brand new bike, though, like you're probably going to have different hoods and a different handlebar shape anyway. So that you're just going to trying to have to,
2: to ballpark. But yeah, uh, I'd say the the mistake most people make with this is that they they use a tape measure to do the saddle height and then they go. Immediately from there, they go from center of stem to the to the edge of the saddle, and then they they base that on the fit, and that basically ensures that you're going to get the wrong saddle setback and your seated position is going to be wrong. So you need to yeah basically what Zach said, you get the the x and y of the saddle in position, and then and then worry about the cockpit reach.
1: Yeah, if you're wanting to like you're like oh I need to have less like a shorter front end like I'm reaching too far, don't just slide your saddle forward. Get a longer or a shorter stem. Like set the saddle in relation to the bottom bracket and then adjust everything from there,
0: but leave the saddle where it is. And, and to be clear, you don't really need a whole lot of complicated measuring or fitting equipment to do any of this. I mean, you can do all of this with just a regular tape measure and a plumb bob. Correct. Um, and, and actually you don't even really need the plumb bob to measure saddle setback. You could just like push the bike back up against the wall yeah. and measure from wall to the bottom bracket and then wall to the nose of the saddle. So there are ways to do that if you don't have a plumb Or you can bob,
2: make a plumb bob with a, some string and a little yeah, weight. Yeah, take an yeah. old shoe and take the lace out and attach
1: <laughs> something to <laughs> it. shoe? <Sure.
0: laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and the shoe <laughs> to the bottom. Anyway, yeah. I mean, it's, it's funny because we we did have a, um, a pretty long discussion on the Velo Club Slack channel a little while ago from one of our members. Uh, I think it was Hannah Nicklin, I think it might have been, uh, who I I think, I think she's currently in i want to say she's in the Netherlands or something right now but anyway she switched from her old bike which had broken to a new bike that she was able to find somewhere and she was having all sorts of weird issues with uh, replicating the fit um, and you know a whole bunch of people chimed in and you know basically what we all recommended to her was essentially you know what we were just talking about but one thing that uh, that often goes unmentioned is how different handlebar bends and how the levers are mounted on those handlebars can dramatically affect the effective reach of that thing. Um, Because I asked her to send me pictures of her current bars or her old handlebar setup and then her new bar setup. And her old one, um, I think it was this older older specialized Ruby or something like that. And it had, um, I think there were specialized women-specific bars that had you know, the, the, the bars didn't really bend forward that far. Like the reach, was, the, the reach on the bar was, you know, numerically probably not that different, but because of where the levers were placed, they were up pretty high and the levers um, kind of like clocked back quite a bit. So they, the effective reach was a lot shorter on that bar. On her new bike, it was much more of a, like an, an exaggerated anatomic bend and where the levers were placed, you could see the, the effective reach on that bar was probably like two or three centimeters different. It was a dramatic, dramatic difference. Um, but again, like, like Zach was saying, you know, place the saddle X and Y relative to where the bottom bracket is, and then go to, um, I guess, stem center as far as where it clamps of the handlebar, make sure that height and, and reach is the same, ideally. But I guess to me, more importantly, the, the, the dimension that you really want to get right is, where sort of like the base of your thumb sits on the lever like that. position. I mean, I'd say if
1: you're super picky, like if you're getting a new bike and you really like how your previous bike was just buy the same bar, like, and then you don't have to worry about that. Yep. Um, I would also say kind of across the board, not, yeah, I would say all the companies are guilty of this. If you're buying a bike straight from a bike shop, that's like, some bike shops redo everything and make it really good. But if they just kind of like threw the bars on, threw the wheels on, most likely the hoods are in a terrible position. Like the people in the factory that are throwing it together don't really care where the hoods go. So usually they're, yeah. There's a whole Instagram page dedicated to this. I can't remember what it's called, but oh, I find it's that. like move your hoods or something. Oh, huh, okay. Well, yeah, just up. like terrible. Most, yeah, most of them are not where they should be. So I would say like probably make sure that those are in a nice real spot as well.
0: Mm. Okay. All right. Well, moving on to the next question. It's still related to fit. Uh, I feel like this is a question that we get fairly often and, and Dave, we keep talking about how we keep meaning to, to get this article done and we still haven't gotten it done yet. Uh, this one comes from Edward Phillips. How do I transfer look cleat position from old specialized shoes to new Shimano shoes?
2: This this article is on the way. I've actually we've we've filmed the video. So. Excellent. Cool. Yes. It, is, it is coming. Should, All right. Yeah, I should rise up uh, for that. Yeah. Mal, who is editing the podcast. Um, is also responsible for editing the video, so let's just all let's just all put a fire under Mao. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> all right. Well, Dave, do you want do you want to run us through then what what your procedure for this is? That? Uh so I I mean, there's there's many ways to do this. Uh, I know my uh, procedure is pretty similar to yours, James, which involves the the square edge of a table. So basically, where I start is I I find the the edges of the the ball of my feet. So actually we'll pull put a little bit of tape on the sides of the shoe where the edges are. And then I'll actually use a marker to mark the, the protrusions left and right. So the, you know, where, where the, the knuckle of your, your big toe is and where the knuckle of your small toe is. And that basically gives you your, your rough cleat center line. Uh, and you want the center of the cleat to line up through that imaginary line that you've just drawn on your shoe. Um, well,
0: not so much the center of the cleat, but wherever the spindle sits.
2: Yeah, which sure. most, cleats
1: have, most cleats have a little yeah. mark on the side of yeah. them.
2: So yeah, so look and um, Shimano cleats both have little tiny little indents in them that that I guess replicate where that spindle will sit. Um, and that's that's sort of the starting point. And then from there, um, I guess I'm fairly lucky where I can have my left and right cleats basically even with their, each other. Um, so I I use, I basically will set up the one cleat to be in line and then I'll, I'll put that on I'll put the back edge of the cleat onto a table and then I'll uh, basically get the other shoe and, and make it line up exactly with the, the, the shoe that I've already set the cleat on. So, you know, get the angle the same and then get the back of the shoe aligned perfectly the front of the shoe. So it's very much a visual thing. Uh, and then you, yeah, I'm pretty much set. I, I've kind of got it dialed to the point where I can do it five, 10 minutes now, get pretty close, but uh, but yeah, the main thing is just uh, yeah, getting a little marker and finding the, those protrusions on your feet and, and getting the cleat as, as central to that as possible. That's I feel hard, like we hard. just
0: broke that cardinal podcast rule of talking about things that we should be showing you.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I guess so. In my mind, it was crystal clear. Yeah. I mean, it makes sense, <laughs> but I've also done that a million times.
0: Right. Right. Same. Yeah. So yeah, Mal, let's get that video done.
1: I mean, it's like, we'll get it at least close. You're still probably going to have to fiddle with it to get it to feel perfect, whether right. that's the cleat in the position or just the way the shoe fits and like positions your foot slightly
2: differently, but it'll at least get it in the ballpark. Or you can be like Ronan, who apparently just like adjusts his cleats every ride. Yeah. <laughs> to the point that he does it while while he rides. Yeah. He just like pulls out a tool and he's just rolling along adjusting his yes. cleats. Yeah. Not, not recommended. Yeah. Not I mean, like all the world tour
1: teams have, there's like a jig for this that's... Really quite nice. And very expensive. Very expensive, but
2: they're really ni- quite nice to use. But you're not going to get that for home. So wait for the video. Well, yeah, the, the, the affordable jig on the market is from Ergon. They do a plastic one. But, I mean, I've, I've had them for years. I don't use them. Uh, it's so, really not yeah. needed. Yeah. Yeah.
0: All right. Next question from Chris Bennett. Uh, this one might be a little bit interesting. Um, Any third-party perspective on all the back and forth between Challenge Tires and Envy he was considering putting some tubeless challenge Strata Bianchi's on, uh, on his 2018 SES 3.4 wheel set, but the interweb is awash with comments from both sides suggesting incompatib- incompatibility is the other's fault. He's interested to know the true story. Um, I'll go ahead and jump in on this one. I, I mean, I, I don't know. I don't think I would say that either side is necessarily to blame, per se, um, but I would say the issue with this sort of thing in general is with some probably actually a lot of hooked carbon rims because of how carbon rims are made. Um, Once those rims come out of the mold and all the tooling is is removed and everything, a lot of time the edge of that hook has to be machined down. And then when you machine that down, you basically are exposing a lot of raw carbon. You're exposing a pretty sharp edge. Um, And those edges will eventually abrade the sidewalls of certain tires if that area is not reinforced. So, you know, ideally you would have rims that don't have to be machined there. Um, but ideally you would also have tires that have a little bit of reinforcement so that you don't necessarily have to worry about that. Um, so yeah, is it challenge's fault for not adding the reinforcement or is it enemy's fault for having a process that, you know, requires a machined
1: the, hook? But the three fours, the SCS 34s though, aren't those hookless? No,
0: not in 2018. Oh, those they changed it. Uh, yeah. Um So Yeah, I mean, yeah, again, like I said, it's not necessarily someone's fault, I would say, but it's just more like a a consequence of the manufacturing style. And it's not, I would say it's not limited to Envy. I would say they're the ones who just kind of, you know, made a pretty big stink about this sort of thing, but it's not exclusive to Envy. So it's basically any carbon rim, I would say, that has a machined hook.
1: I mean, what happens over time is just the friction from the tire and rim interface just slowly cuts into the basically the bead and sidewall of the tire, and then eventually it'll blow out. Um, so I think, I think that they say that you can use the tubeless, tubeless cotton tires, like Victoria's, for example, like you can't use the normal Corsa, but You could use the, the tubeless one cause the bead is reinforced in that area. So potentially the same with challenge, but I would always refer to whatever envy says is approved. Like if they're saying, don't use this tire, then to me, I would say like, that's not worth taking that risk because right. tire blowouts, tire blowouts are not, poorly. not fun. So just use a different tire. And if you really like that tire so much, then, like, get a different wheel set. Right,
0: right. Like, decide what you want more. <laughs> so, yeah, so no, you know, no, like, big conspiracy theory or, any, like, no hidden thing or anything as far as I know. Um, but that's basically the story with that. So, um, like I said, it's not just challenge, it's not just envy, but that is one particular combination that is maybe not ideal for certain models. Um, anyway, all right, moving on. Robert Hess would like to know if we have any tips... On cleaning the gunk out of Presta valve cores, that seems to inevit- inevitably accumulate when running tubeless. Um, or is it just better to buy replacement valve cores and change them out when they get clogged? I would
1: put a replacement valve core in. Like, so, everything I've ever tried to clean them kind of works maybe for a little bit, but then... It, get in there. Yeah, you can't. I mean, maybe you could try soaking them in something, but I don't know. Like, just take valve cores out of some old tubes. Like, you don't even have to go buy them. And if you do have to buy them, they're not very expensive at all. Right.
0: Or just take them out of your friend's bike.
1: Yeah, there you go. <laughs> but um, yeah, I mean, like, you could probably get a 10-pack for, like, $3 or something. So,
0: I don't know. Yeah, they're, they're pretty inexpensive. Um, you know, Robert, if you are accumulating a lot of sealant in those valves, though, I mean, a lot of times that suggests to me that there's something about the valve that isn't shaped very well or something about the way you're putting sealant in those tires that's accumulating sealant in there. Yeah. Um, you know, I know I'm, I'm certainly guilt, guilty of this a lot of times too. I have you know like an empty two ounce stands bottle that I use for injecting sealant sometimes, and like it just goes into the end of the valve core uh, of the valve stem, and you know, it kind of filters in, filters into the tire and that sort of thing. And then I put the valve core in, um, pump up the tire, and that you know doing that it works, but it does leave more sealant in the valve stem. Um, if you instead use like a dedicated sealant injector i mean park has a new one now uh, you know Milkit has had one for a while that has a little straw that extends all the way through the valve then that way you, you have you have a better chance of getting that sealant into the tire without getting it in the valve stem body um that helps too um I, but like the big, I would
1: be afraid if it goes that small of a diameter to fit all the way through the valve like that's just going to clog
0: no they, like been, that's going to clog the good. injector rather than clogging the valve no they've they've, they've been pretty good I have, i've had pretty good experience with them but but the big thing is um Ideally you would want a valve that has like a pretty good sized rubber bulb on the on the rim side of there so that so that sealant can't really flow very easily into the valve stem body. Um so if this is something that you're having issues with repeatedly, I might just I might just consider replacing the valve stems that you have in general and then not just yeah. the
2: cores. Yeah. Um personally valve cores I I do occasionally if they if they're getting clogged, I actually do take them out and kind of just clean the back of them. Um not the valve, st- not the whole valve stem, just the valve core. I'll, I'll clean the back of them, and then I'll put like a little drop of chain lube on the thread, which kind of, uh, uh, I guess, assists with um, how they can kind of get tight with time, um, with with sealants on them. So uh, I, I don't know. I find that gives them a bit of a longer life. But yeah, once they're really clogged, it's just it's just easier just to change out the fifty cent part.
1: Like sometimes you can like it's just clogged at the back. Can you just pick it off and then it's yeah. fine? But yeah. once it clog- clogs the inside of it, then it's yeah, kind of game over.
2: Yeah.
0: All right. Next question from Guy Perry. What's everyone's secret workshop tips for getting hose and housing length perfect on the first time? Uh, For context, for a sensitive part, he'll sometimes make a template piece from an old piece of outer housing uh, or hose before cutting the new length. But he's wondering if anyone had any genius tips for just getting it right the first time every time that all too often I end up with a run that's five to 10 millimeters too long as I add a safety margin. And then once everything is connected up, I don't go back to make it perfect.
1: I mean, I would say I have no secret tips for this. I've just done it a lot, I guess.
0: Yeah. I mean, uh, I guess conceptually, I mean, same, I've done this a lot too, but I guess, you know, for me, what I've always done is, you know, kind of, you know, connect the hard points that absolutely are always going to be connected. Yeah. Like, you know, at, you know, So for a hydraulic brake, you know, you have the hose connected to the lever. um, And for derailleur housing, you have the hose at least sort of like inserted into the lever. And then, um, you know, you tape that stuff to the bar the way it would be underneath handlebar tape. And then you rotate the bar through the full rotation that you want to be able to rotate through. And then basically just see where the end of that housing ends up on the frame where it needs to go. Uh, And then as long as you have... Just enough slack to be able to afford you that range of movement, and then you know, accounting for you know, sometimes you have a couple millimeters of extra length from the from the housing frail if you if for derailleur housing. Um, that's kind of it, I think, as far as you know, nailing the length. Yeah, I mean,
1: like it's a lot of it's personal preference too. Like some people like to leave things with room for adjustment and kind of longer, so you can travel with your bike easier to rotate the bars. Some people like to have it just so you can barely turn the handlebars like i mean if this guy's i mean i don't know
0: well uh, he he said That's that hen't really he, answering but yeah but, but he said he consistently ends up or often ends up with runs that are 5 to 10 millimeters 10 millimeters too long because he adds in a safety margin to me that indicates to me that he is sort of doubting the you know doubting the accuracy of how he is making his cuts um but if Guy, I would say if you are consistently ending up with runs that are 5 to 10 millimeters too long because you're adding in that safety factor, it sounds to me like you have a pretty good handle already on how long those things need to be, and you kind of just need to commit at that point yeah. and believe start that you're doing Start cutting them improperly. 5 to
1: 10 millimeters shorter. Yeah, so just be perfect.
0: D- ditch your safety margin and just start believing that you're doing it right.
2: Yeah. 5 millimeters isn't very much, though. It's, uh, you're pretty much there if you're, if you're 5 millimeters off. Yeah. Yeah, like looking down, you're not going to... The housing's not going to be sticking way out because it's five millimeters too long. No. Uh, What I would say, Zach, with your point about, um, you know, how it's preference and some people don't like the bars to turn and stuff, I would say for any bike going off-road, gravel bike included, make sure that uh, your derailleur derailleur housing is not the thing stopping your bars from turning further. Right. A lot of times I'd say with that...
1: Uh, a lot of bikes, just the way the cables are routed, like the housing will catch on the stem faceplate and then the housing is plenty long to rotate, but then the way that they're taped to the bar or whatever, it will catch on the, the stem plate when you turn the bars
2: past a certain point and then mess things all up. So make sure you're not doing that. The reason for that warning is um, if you were to lay the bike down, you were to like um, cook a, overcook a corner where the bars twist. Um, basically the force of that in my experience would be enough to rip the derailleur housing and then you'd be stuck without gears for the ride so just don't go that short on any bike going off road
1: (laughs) nope
0: Hmm. all right um we have a grease question here from i'm gonna butcher this name zimbo boduins sounds like you nailed it sure um is there anything special to take into account when putting grease on free hub Paul's my fulcrum racing five free hub used to be very quiet. Uh, it got noisy recently, but when I added some grease, it didn't take long before it started getting noisy again. Is it a matter of just putting in more grease or is it a specific type of grease?
1: Definitely a specific type of grease in the free hub. I'd say most things on the bike, like you can use whatever grease as long as it's like a nice waterproof grease. Um, but in the free hub body, you need like there are specific free hub greases or you can, I'm sure there are other greases that would work that are for other, other industries, but you just need something that's thin, so that it's not going to get um, gummed up when you're coasting at high speed, and also something that's not going to get affected by temperature. Like if you're riding in the cold, you still want to be able to coast.
2: Um,
0: so. Or you'll still be able to coast. You want the hub to be able to reengage. Yeah, yeah,
2: yeah. both. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's like a unique blend of stickiness and uh, and and uh, low viscosity, kind of.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think. Like, I use here, I've got Dumontech. They have a nice freehub body grease. Um, they also have a freehub oil. Um, both work well. I would say in terms of noise, like, no matter what you do, that grease is just going to get dispersed inside there, and, like, you could pack it in full, and it's going to be quiet, and then you're going to do a few rides, and then it's going to be loud again. If it's, obviously, if it like, if it had been a long time and it, it was bone dry inside there, of course, it's going to be way louder, but, like, put, yeah, you want it to be lubed, but I wouldn't necessarily be lubing it to try and make it quiet. Like Falkerman and Campy hubs are, I would say, generally some of the more loud ones. Um but
0: yeah. Oh weird. I was just gonna say that I found them to be a little more quiet.
1: Oh really? Yeah. Oh yeah. All the ones I've ever had personally and then ones I've worked on, all
0: these were pretty loud. Huh. Maybe I just got lucky. Yeah. Or maybe it's because I just packed them completely full with fill wood.
1: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
0: right. Because <laughs> it's just a simple
2: three Paul like ratchet system with yep. pretty big pretty big gaps in between each tooth it's pretty straightforward yeah yeah but yeah it's not the the spring that they use in there that that single round spring doesn't give huge amounts of force to the poles so don't use a real thick grease in there because it'll it'll stick the poles down
0: uh speaking of lube uh dave i feel like this is kind of one for you from uh misha sinner so wolf tooth has a new chain lube called wt1 uh it's claimed to be clean and uh it claims to clean and lubricate the bike chain uh misha says that they have it here now tested it on their bike however the misha is not sure how to distinguish the product from any other lube and how to know if the cleanliness claims really hold true uh according to reviewers it says you know put some wt1 on your chain go for a ride you know your drive chain gets dirty and then you wipe it the dirt supposedly in that case is the dirt from the lubricant uh that this that dirt that the lubricant's pulling out from the inside of the chain but is that true i feel like every chain lube that comes out
1: they Always say they cleaning. say the same exact thing.
2: Not not the good lubes. <laughs> um, true, true. Uh, so just well, because you have to start with a perfectly
1: clean chain, so oh, you're not, not pulling not out dirt. This. Okay, like when you start with I, a perfectly clean chain, and <laughs> it's
2: going to It's not going to pull out any dirt. Yeah. Um, I would I would say any any lube that claims to clean and lubricate is, is lying somewhat. They're making stuff up. Yeah, because the, the cleaning part is the carrier of the lubricant. So it's like yeah. an alcohol base or a solvent base that carries the lubricant and that's what sort of floats up and dissolves the dirt in your chain. That stuff goes away and then leaves less lubricant behind. Um, so you're better off getting a, a lubricant that is basically solely lubricant you, you clean your chain with a product designed for cleaning your chain, aka degreaser, and then you use a, a lubricant that is actually heavily based as a lubricant. That is, that is the best way to go. Um, but yeah, there are a lot of products out there that claim to clean and then lube, and they do, they just don't do either of those things very well.
0: And, and to be clear, I think, uh, Dave, I, know, I you know, I'm pretty confident in saying this for the two of us, you know, we're generally fans of wolf tooth products um but you know some of the claims with that lube just don't really quite seem to no. I,
2: I actually any- I, I I haven't used that lube myself I don't believe Wolf Tooth actually created it themselves I believe it's a rebrand of something that uh was pre-existing that has a pretty strong reputation um I don't think it's a bad product I just I would just heed warning that any product that any chain lubricant that claims to do you know polish clean lube is is, uh, is kind of being a jack-of-all-trades type thing where it's, it's not going to actually be the best lubricant possible.
1: Yeah, I mean, I would say, like, across the board, any chain lube that has marketing points of doing anything other than lubing, mm-hmm. that's
0: probably too good to be true. So the one that I just bought that says that, like, um, it'll help me lose weight and yeah. look better. Yeah, like, not
2: going <laughs> to work. To be fair, if you drink a lot of these lubricants, you will lose weight. <laughs> 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 Don't try this at home. <laughs> No,
0: no, not recommended, not recommended. All right, moving on. Callan Smalls uh, would like to know, uh, Callan has a SRAM level TLM mountain bike brake caliper with a slightly sticky piston. What's the best way to go about fixing it? Is it easy to pull out the piston and fix it in some way or should I just replace the caliper? I I think we answer this one every frequently. I think we did talk about this not that
1: long ago. Probably multiple occasions. But I mean, you definitely, they're probably just a little dirty. You probably don't need to disassemble the entire caliper or buy a new one, just kind of extend the piston out and get a Q-tip and some, some rubbing alcohol and just kind of clean it up really well. And then take the other end of the Q-tip with some dot fluid and rub it around and push the piston back in and see if that solves it.
0: Uh, I've sometimes used, I guess an air gun to kind of like try and blow out some of the stuff too.
1: Yeah. I mean, if it's dirty, don't just like, let's say you're putting new pads in and the piston's dirty. Don't just shove it back in the caliper. Like that's not going to be successful. Um, but yeah, probably don't need to buy
2: a whole new caliper for this. Seems unlikely. Yeah,
0: should be recoverable. I think
2: um, the tip there is uh, at least with SRAM calipers. I, I don't really do it with Shimano, but um, with SRAM calipers, you can. Uh, it's exactly a gap of four millimeters, so it's it's two rotors width. Um, you you kind of use up the full the full with without the pads in place. You use up the full gap um, where the rotor normally sits, so you can kind of stack. Um, I mean, I've I've got a tool for this. Like I I use the, like a a rotor straightening tool that just kind of fits perfectly in there, but you can use business cards. You can use a few other things, but basically you fill up that center gap and then you can safely progress the pistons until they, they squish against that tool that you put in there. Um, And and yeah, they basically have designed it that the pistons will reach their, the maximum length before they pop out um, by hitting this, that four millimeter tool in the middle. Um, And then that'll give you full access to clean them safely without risk of them actually popping out um i haven't tried that with shimano but i do know it's it's basically the the, the suggested work. method with SRAM, and it works really well and the
0: concept is the same i actually yeah. just
2: did that to a set of uh, to
0: my xtr rear caliper the other day yeah um and it, it it sometimes does take a little bit of work um but it, it seems like it's pretty unusual that you'd have to scrap the whole caliper yeah for sure all right let's finish up with one last question this might be a little bit of a big one Big one. Um, Greg Maxock. Uh, Greg, Greg and fellow Velo Club member Emma are about to head out on a 4,700-kilometer-long unsupported ride in Western Australia. That's a big um, one. And they are keen to get some feedback from us <laughs> on their proposed spares list. Uh, right now, they are looking at one spare 32-millimeter Grand Prix uh, 5000 tire, uh, one tube each. Ye- uh, four CO2 canisters, tire levers, one spare disc brake pad each. I guess, pair, I'm assuming. Uh, three coin batteries for whatever things are running. Spare derailleur hanger, spare quick links, some chain lube, muck-off tubeless repair kit, uh, small sealant bottle, a fiber-fixed spare spoke, and a hand pump. Hmm.
1: I mean, I would think more than, what was it, two CO2s or something?
0: Four CO2s each, but they also are going to have a hand pump, too.
1: Yeah, I mean... If you have a hand pump, that's fine, but I would probably like that's a long bike ride. That I would bring more than ride. one spare tire.
0: I would bring more than one spare tire. I would bring a tire boot kit, uh, which would be difficult to use. I mean, it sounds like they're like using tubeless,
1: tubeless it sounds so like, tubeless. like a bunch of plugs. I mean, I guess I don't know what the roads that they're riding.
2: Yeah, the the Western Australia. I mean, I don't know where they're going, but there are bike shops scattered along the coast there, so they're probably they're they're probably you know at worst are. are Yes, they're going to be a thousand kilometers from the nearest shop. So, I mean, it's not like they're going to have to do the entire thing unsupported. Um, so I think one tire might be enough if they've got boots and stuff like that to, to fill in the gap. But um, yeah, I, I, the the episode I did with Brad Copeland a few weeks ago would be worth listening to, which uh, we basically spoke about mechanicals prevention and uh, what he gives his riders for like 200 kilometer um, or not 200 kilometer, but marathon-based mountain bike races like Cape Epic, and I think a lot of that is actually relevant here as well. Um, the tubes sounded one each. Sounded a few. Yeah, few. I would bring it. Um, a few yeah, are. I um, I would bring some extras.
0: One thing that, one thing I'm a little uh, I'm a little concerned about is just with the length of the the route in general. Uh, I don't know what sort of weather they may potentially run into. Um, but 4,700 kilometers, I mean, that's, it's a I mean, long bike ride. It's a, it's a long, long way. Um, and if they end up, I mean, it, I don't know how wet it is on that coast. Um, but if there's a possibility that they're pretty dry, okay. If it's generally pretty dry, then as, you know, as long as they have, as long as they're running, uh, as long as they are running good chain lube, um, then drivetrain wear is probably not going to be an issue was, there, um, was
1: I can't remember. We were talking about some wax lube. They said it lasted like 30,000 kilometers or something.
0: Well, I think it, it <laughs> let the chain last that long. Like, yeah. yeah. I, I don't think.
2: Yeah. The chain will last 30,000 kilometers if you re-wax it every 150 to 200 kilometers. <laughs> right. But they're not going to carry a, a crockpot with them for this no. ride. So. Well, they could. Yeah. They I mean, shouldn't. <laughs> <laughs> no. I mean, I think like, something like this, though.
1: It's like, what, if you don't bring it and you have an issue... You're gonna really regret bringing it, and if you bring it as a spare, whatever it is, you probably won't need it. So it's like finding that balance of how much risk do you want to take of being stranded in the middle of nowhere with, like, let's say there's a patch of bad road and it was two people, you flat all four tires because you run over something and kill them, like, and you're in the middle of nowhere. That's gonna suck. So like, you want to be
2: prepared how to fix that stuff. Like, I mean, I don't. Is it flat or is it hilly? Mm, uh, Both. Uh, I don't know where they're going. But yeah, I mean, there's no mountains there, but there will be rolling terrain. Yeah. yeah,
1: So you're probably not not really going to go through that much brake pad. Like if it's disc, throw some metallic pads on if you want to be safe and not blast through pads and not have to carry spare. Like those will last a long time. But like wearable items that like, yeah, tires and stuff like that, I would i would come prepared or if you're doing that long of a ride like don't run gp 5000s that's a yeah, that's, tire. that was the one that put like i thought about. a yeah. thick heavy tire on that's gonna last a long time and be harder to puncture that's what i would do there yeah like i mean that's that's a tire that's designed to last like 1500 kilometers
2: anyways yeah more than that but yeah i mean it is it they'll be wearing those things out by the time they get to the end of yeah. the trip yeah right Right. Um, I, but especially if they're loaded yeah. down, it's gonna wear, they're going to wear even faster.
0: Right, because yeah. it, they, are, they did say that they're going to be unsupported, so they're carrying yeah. all their own stuff. Yeah, yeah. put are different they, tires on.
2: Are they on tubeless? Was it tubeless? I heard It sounds yeah. like tubeless because yeah, they did talk the about carrying sealant. sealant. Yeah, I would take a little bit more sealant, take plenty of tire plugs. I don't know if that was on their list.
0: Uh, I mean, they said a muck-off muck tubeless repair kit, which I hope includes plugs.
2: Yeah, I mean, the alternative is like run a heavy
1: tire and run tubes. Like go into it thinking I'm going to get flats. And then it's way easier to change a flat on the side of the road with the inner tube than it is dealing with tubeless.
0: And then at that point, if you were to bring like an actual glued patch kit, which are very reliable. Take that
1: tube and stretch a lot of flats out of it.
0: I mean, you could patch it like almost indefinitely.
1: Yeah. I mean, that's what I would do. Like just pure of ease of ease of getting the one, the
2: one thing, I mean, I I haven't done a heap of riding outside of Perth, which is Western Australia, but Oh, and I've done Margaret River as well, which is down south. But um, I haven't done 4,700 kilometers of Western Australia. Um, but Australia in general, um, we have a lot of drunks which uh, drink their their beers and then throw them out the window. So there's normally all our highways and all our roads have a lot of uh, glass strewn everywhere. So tubeless in that sense is actually probably not a bad idea. Um, but yeah, just go heavy on the... Spare sealant. And I'd also say, like, if weight is an issue, which it is with this type of stuff, um, maybe something like Tubolito might be a good investment because you can have, you know, two tubes for the size of one kind of thing. Right. Yeah. Um, so yeah but I guess
0: in that sense, I would rather just have a regular butyl tube with patches just in terms of like the reliability yeah. thing and the reusability thing.
2: Yeah. I do, I do agree with Zach, which is, yeah, a thicker, less racy tire might actually be a good idea. Um, you know, it, it will be. Low, you know, higher rolling resistance, but uh, but but fixing get there. flats yeah. is quite. I slow. mean, I
1: think too, like if let's say there's a bike shop every thousand kilometers, like when you get to those towns where there's a bike shop, look at your tires and be like, this is gonna last another thousand kilometers, or it's like, uh, it's got some cuts and stuff. Like maybe replace it there and stock up on extras at the shop. Like kind of when you're out of town with stuff, be
0: preventative.
2: Yeah. But, so, um. But yeah, I think. Uh, Was
0: a spare chain on the list? Not a spare chain. Um, I was just thinking a spare chain would probably not be a terrible idea. They are going to bring some spare links. Yeah. Um, Actually, they just said spare quick links. I would bring some spare actual links. Yeah. Because if Uh, you just
1: put a quick link in, your
0: the chain gets shorter every time.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um, And they said hangers, and that's always a good idea. Yep. Even if you're not going to break it, but Uh, like, let's say something happens, and the bike shop that is the only one there, you're on a Specialized, and they're a Trek dealer. Yeah, they don't have your hanger. Yeah, I
0: would also bring uh, an assortment of hardware, like just uh, you know various lengths of five millimeter, six millimeter, five millimeter, six millimeter, like you know whatever hardware you have on your bike, um, because those are the sorts of things where if something does go wrong and you don't have it, it's very possible that your ride is just done. Um, I would maybe also consider bringing one spare cleat and hardware, um, because if you're running clipless pedals and you have a broken cleat, then that could be a huge be problem a too. Uh, and those things are small and they're light and like, easy to carry, that sort of thing. Um, what else might I bring? Um, I don't know what kind of shoes they're running, but if something were to happen with a shoe, like you might want to just carry a bunch of duct tape or zip ties. Uh, it's not completely unheard of that a boa will fail somewhere yeah. out in the field or ratchet or something like that, so it would be good to have some sort of backup just to kind of hold your foot on there. Um, but yeah, I, mean, you know, I mean, I guess I would also, like, before you
1: leave on this journey... Make sure your bike is in tip-top shape. Don't like don't start the ride with a tire that's not fresh or like a chain that's pretty worn already. Like start it with everything in really good shape. Like that might sound like common sense, but you'd be
0: surprised. <laughs> and, and maybe have that done and do like one ride at least before you head out on this trip. Yeah. Uh, you know, don't just take it to your favorite mechanic and just assume that everything is perfect.
2: Yeah. Uh, the coin cell batteries mentioned make me think that they might be on tram. That's kind of make, making me wonder too. Yeah. Yeah. Which In which case, I'd pack at least one spare actual derailleur battery as well. Agreed. Yeah. Yeah.
1: And a charger. Don't forget that. <laughs> no.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Yes. But yeah, yes, a, a, an entire spare battery would be a, a good call in addition to, or two spare batteries because they're quite small, they're quite light. Um, yeah. yeah. And yeah, you know, there might be a time where you run out of battery and you can't access a charger. So.
1: Yeah. And make sure your spare batteries are also charged. And not
0: like charged a year ago, but charge them. True. Because they it, do slowly drain as, in your saddlebag. And, and use the little clips that, that SRAM provides to keep the contacts clean and you know, make sure they're not shorting out somewhere and all that stuff. Yep. Um, what else
1: would there be? Not really sure. I mean, I would say also make sure that all the spare stuff that you're bringing, make sure that you know how, how to, to install it. Yeah, how to use them. <laughs> Don't be on the side of the road and be like, well, I have all these things that the internet said I needed to bring, but I don't know how to put them on my bicycle. Like, let's say you have an old tire on your bike. Go figure out how the plugs work if you've not used the tire plugs before. Like, go, yeah, do this stuff not for the
0: first time. Man, 4,700K. That's it's a too, long too bike many. Ride. That's like what I do in a year. <laughs> Best of luck with the trip. Yeah. All right. Greg and Emma, I don't know when exactly you are leaving on this trip, but uh, certainly feel free to reach out to us directly if you have any more questions, because uh, I would have more questions myself, yeah. certainly. Um, but yes, I mean, if we don't hear from you, good luck on this trip. We hope to see a lot of pictures from this trip at some point, And I'd imagine you were going to come back with one heck of a story. So we would like to hear it when you come back. All right. Yeah. With that, I think we're going to go ahead and wrap up this week's show. Sweet thanks as always for listening to the cycling tips nerd alert podcast if you are not already subscribed please consider doing so uh, if you are listening to this on Apple iTunes please leave us a rating or review uh, either way whatever platform you're using to listen to this podcast please let your friends know about cycling tips nerd alert and all the other cycling tips podcasts for that matter because we do have quite a lot of them now like including the regular weekly or slash daily show now that we're in the tour we have from the top we have freewheeling. It's hard to keep track now. We have a lot of, we have a lot of podcasts. Uh, but anyway, thanks again for listening. And as I mentioned before, please consider becoming a Vela Club member. And we will see you all next week. Bye-bye. Bye. Cheers.